Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. While we're closing in on another critical decision day in Hamilton's fight against the spread of COVID-19, do we expect to move into lockdown tomorrow with the current case count? We'll talk about that. Health Canada completed its review of the clinical data submitted by Pfizer, and they have deemed this long-awaited vaccine safe for use. We'll give you the next steps about what's going to be happening with the distribution. And a universal basic income has been hailed as a key part in kickstarting the economy in a post-pandemic Canada. David Stiff is the director of the Canadian Centre for Economic Analysis, and he joins us to talk about it. It's all coming up. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Let's talk about the vaccine. Let's talk about uh, what's going to be happening here in uh, our local areas. Uh, We do know, of course, that uh, Health Canada has uh, given the thumbs up right now for the Pfizer vaccine. And uh, I know that uh, General Rick Hiller, retired General Rick Hiller, who's in charge of the program here in the province of Ontario, uh, has suggested that uh, the shipments could start as early as next week. But uh, let's be practical about this and not get our hopes up too high because apparently the the wider distribution of the vaccine probably is not going to happen until springtime for a lot of us anyway so how is uh, how is hamilton preparing for this what are we doing to to try to get our, our, our act together here to make sure that when the uh, the vaccine is finally available that we know what we're doing well there was a discussion about that just the other day at uh, hamilton city hall paul johnson the director of emergency services uh during the pandemic uh, is with us right now on the bill kelly show to give us some insight to this paul thanks so much for the time glad you could be with us today great to be with you bill well, I, I got to tell you, uh, you know, as, as we were mentioning on the show yesterday, I, I, you know, in the heat of this pandemic and now into round two of this, uh, I didn't think we'd be talking about this before Christmas, that, you know, about how we're going to deal with the, a vaccine that's actually going to help us with this. But here we are. Uh, maybe give us the lay of the land here, what, what you know so far and, and where we're going on this, that uh, we're still talking probably at least another three, four months before each and every one of us can probably roll up our sleeves. Uh, we are. I mean, the, the things we know are the good news is we have an approval of uh, a first vaccine. Uh, it's widely expected that there'll be uh, further approvals of, of other vaccines as we move forward. So with that in mind, uh, what, how, how does the city plan for something like this? Because we, uh, I tried to get information the other day from the province about this, about distribution and how this is going to happen, and they were uh, pretty foggy about that. I'm not so sure that they even know how this is going to work out here. So what are you doing in preparation for this? A few things. So uh, our emergency operations center is working alongside the public health and healthcare folks to learn as much as we can. I will say right now, uh, we're still uh, without a lot of information about what's happening. And that's not a bad thing. The initial doses of this will be very small in number. And so, and, and clearly the prioritization is already out there publicly. This is going to be for, for staff and residents uh, and, and who are in long-term care and congregate settings. It's going to focus on health workers and, and first responders. And so we know the priority populations out of the gate. And the other thing is the doses that may arrive this month are going to be very small in number. So we have a little bit more of a runway to plan for the mass vaccination. For most people, this is going to be a through 2021 process and deep into 2021 process. So I think that uh, as much as we're all excited about this uh, development, and, and certainly it's, uh, it's a good exhale moment. We, 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 see, we see to the finish line here, but that finish line is still a long way away. So what's happening locally is uh, trying to understand exactly what this first uh, uh, shipment of doses will look like exactly how much and exactly what we can do with that because uh, uh, you know obviously if it's a very small number there'll have to be some very uh, targeted conversations about who will receive that but the bigger work is to ramp up for the larger and larger uh, approaches to immunization that will happen uh, deeper through 2021 and as I say we have a little bit of time for that so I would say uh, you know early in the new year we'll be able to provide a lot more information for the general public but what's great is uh, that that some people who are working in those very vulnerable areas and some residents that live in these vulnerable settings uh, are going to see some uh, vaccination happening uh, sooner rather than later. Paul, the expectation is that uh, this is not going to be widely available like like the flu shot. I mean, you can get flu shot at, at your local pharmacy or your doctors, whichever. Uh, but this is probably going to be a situation where you're going to have to go to a specific location to, to get this vaccine. Is that your expectation? Well, initially, it's going to be very specific like that. Uh, who knows as we move forward? There are a number of, of vaccines that, uh, that, you know, everybody's read about and heard about, which uh, have um, 
uh, you know, perhaps less stringent cold chain requirements right now. Of course, the vaccine that everybody's talking about needs to be uh, kept at a, a very, very cold temperature. And and so there's very little way that this could be done in a mass uh, approach. But there are uh, discussions about some other vaccines that are much more uh, able to be stored, like the flu vaccine or others. So, again, this is where, for the broad population, it is a waiting game. Uh, and, and we need to see what was going to be available and see how that distribution network would take place and depending on what the vaccine looks like depending on how it needs to be stored uh, will adjust how people can can access it as we enter into 2021 so i know right now everybody wants to know hey when's the date when can i go uh, for most people in our community the answer is uh, we don't know that uh, and we won't know that probably for a little bit of time but the good news is is for some of those that are very vulnerable uh, there's the beginnings of an ability for us to uh, administer vaccine Paul, you mentioned uh, uh, there are going to be different vaccines. We understand that. But obviously the one that's that's out there right now is that, that's gotten the approval is, is the Pfizer vaccine. Uh, and you mentioned about the cold storage and the, the minus 70, I think, I think it is. Yeah. I, I'm surprised that Dr. Richardson made the comment the other day that apparently here in the city in Hamilton, uh, we do have uh, capacity to store some of that stuff. We do have some of that stuff available, those, those refrigeration units that can store this. Well, you know, Hamilton is a great place to live, as you well know, Bill, yep. and uh, we're blessed. And one of the things we're blessed with is uh, major healthcare facilities and also, um, you know, major research facilities within our community. And so our, our hospitals and, and in partnership with the research that goes on in this community, they do have those capacities and they do have those types of freezers because other work that happens on a day-by-day, year-by-year basis uh, it requires things to be stored at that temperature as well. So there, uh, the good news is, is that the major hubs around Ontario have this capacity and the great news is, is that Hamilton is, 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 is there with it. So, um, you know, the logistics provincially, uh, all the hospitals and, and have been able to uh, provide back information about what their capacities are. Um, and as I say, we're, we're, we're in good shape in Hamilton. And that, uh, that takes one of those question marks off the table in terms of would we be able to store this uh, vaccine? Which would cause speculation i guess that maybe the hospitals may be the the center point for the the distribution of it too but i guess as you say that's to be determined so we'll not go too, too far down that road until you actually get some more details and some facts from the from the province and from the federal government because we're not even sure exactly how much of the vaccine we're going to get right now are we no we're not and the other piece is that uh, you know they will be coming to distribution sites but those are distribution sites for broader than the location and where they are so uh, uh, it could be a more regional approach to it uh, because not every community has the capacity and the province is not uh, interested in the early stages of delivering it to every single community they've chosen a number of sites where it'll be delivered so how many uh, will will be used in hamilton alone they've also talked about communities of course that are in different categories uh, of um, uh, in their provincial framework so the red and gray categories uh, being higher priorities than others so there's a lot of things for us to learn over the next uh, days and weeks uh, in terms of how this will be distributed but yes we don't know the pure volume and we don't know whether that would be more regionally or whether it will be more so for the city of hamilton Paul, part of the discussion uh, with the province is going to have to be about uh, about staffing. And I know that uh, Mayor Eisenberger has joined a number of other mayors uh, in the area here asking uh, the province to say, look, if we're going to do this properly, uh, we're going to need financial assistance, obviously, and, and staffing. I mean, you know, we, we already know that, that our healthcare workers are stretched to the limit right now because of what we're dealing with the pandemic. Uh, give us an analysis of exactly how that would look. What do we need? Obviously, you know, financial resources has to be part of this, to be sure. But but are you looking for adding staff to be able to accommodate the, the, the push that we expect are gonna, is going to happen, rather, from the people that want this vaccine? Well, the expectation would be that as this starts to roll out for broader and broader numbers of people, if you want to do this and with any kind of pace, that you're, you're going to need dedicated people to do it. It's no different than our testing and assessment centers now that have dedicated staff. Otherwise, you know, people wouldn't be able to get uh, COVID-19 tests done in a, in a timely fashion. So, yes, there will need to be staffing, you know, probably less worried about money, to be honest with you. I think if, if this is the way we end 
uh, this crisis in, in all our communities, I'm pretty sure levels of government will band together to say, here's the money. The challenge we have right now is that uh, we can't we can't stop focusing on the very important needs of protecting people from COVID-19 today, which is stretching health resources, is stretching community resources, uh, is stretching everybody because, uh, you know, we're going to be doing this vaccination strategy while we're going to be deeply concerned about keeping the spread of this virus uh, contained. And in, as you know, in Hamilton right now, uh, our numbers are not in a good shape. So we're going to have to keep two two things in equal proportion here and that's where there is going to need to be dedicated staffing for this you simply couldn't pull people away from the important work in congregate settings or in hospital settings our public health unit trying to do contact tracing and case management those things are uh, critically important they will continue throughout this because um, you know in the early stages of this vaccination program uh, too few people will be vaccinated for us to start to relax any of our public health measures or the staffing that is ensuring people stay safe. Paul, let's get into that if we could. Uh, for people who may not be aware, if you're scoring at home, we are in the red zone. We're a red zone uh, area right now, as opposed to the gray, the shutdown areas in Peel and, and the, through the GTA, the Toronto area. Uh, but there's a concern, and you've mentioned this, and Dr. Richardson and the mayor have all mentioned, uh, that if the numbers continue the way they've been going for the last four or five days, that uh, when the province comes out with their new designations tomorrow, uh, we may well be in shutdown mode. Uh, and, and I know that that's had to be frustrating for you and for Dr. Richardson and everybody else who've been in watching this, uh, because really when I say we're in the red zone, it's red zone plus because uh, you guys have actually added more restrictions than ordinarily would be in a red zone because you just wanted to try to to stop the flow here and it hasn't really happened sadly as the way things are going uh what's your expectation and if we do have to go to that next level unfortunately what's that look like uh so a few things there. Expectation, uh, we don't know. There are conversations happening. And in Hamilton's case, there are some things which are worrying and don't put us in great shape. Uh, you know, we're coming up uh, tomorrow to 28 days from the first announcement. We were moving into the red zone. Uh, they make those announcements on Fridays. And 28 days later, uh, many of our key markers are way worse than they were 28 days before. So we've gone through two of those uh, cycles of of, uh, of the virus and our case count per 100,000 is nearly double what it was when we entered into the red zone. Uh, we have an, a, a positivity rate of our tests. It's over 3%. Uh, we, we are seeing outbreaks in a variety of locations that are large scale outbreaks. So those aren't the things that, that bode well for us. On the other hand, we are not at a level that we're Peel and Toronto were when they entered into the, the gray category. So uh, I think, you know, I've said it before, we're very much on the edge and it'll be, uh, interesting what cabinet uh, decides uh, on this in terms of if we were to tip into this and it's a bit of the piece about the extra measures that dr richardson put in which i know mm-hmm. people are frustrated with the reason those are put in is we're trying desperately and doing everything we can think of to keep us from the gray zone because if businesses feel that some of these new measures are a little bit tough well many of those businesses will simply be closed if we go into lockdown non-essential retails closed recreation facilities closed except in extreme circumstances for pro teams and things like that so many of the things that we do no indoor gatherings uh, many of the things that we do um, now in the red zone are taken away from us and so any of these additional measures that dr richardson is considering are really meant to do just that try and keep our numbers headed in the right direction uh, so that we don't end up in that gray category. The impacts on that, on business, on people's um, mental health and well-being and their physical well-being are significant. So we want to do our very best to stay out of that area. Well, yeah, for a whole lot of reasons. Obviously, there's there's the, that stuff that you've just mentioned. But, I mean, we're heading into Christmas time and, you know, shopping and a number of other things that are on people's minds these days. And I saw some of the comments uh, from the meeting you guys attended the other day with City Council about this and uh, and you know some of the counselors complaining about the fact that they were getting calls from constituents especially business owners say well we have to dedicate a staff member to sitting at the door there ask this questionnaire and i understand that i i get their frustration problematic but the option is shut the door and you're not going to get anybody in the store uh and i've you know we've had occasion to do that i had to go to the pharmacy the other day and and they're asked fine it's it it takes like 20 seconds but it's a precaution that that is absolutely necessary in this circumstance i mean we've got to do something here because clearly uh, what we've been doing in the past isn't knocking the curve down that that seems to be the big problem here it is and you know and and part of what dr richardson says is you know uh, 
lockdown may not, may not address all of the things that we need to. So let's try and do some of those things in advance. And one of those is we know too many people when they are sick continue to do the things of their daily life. They're not staying at home. They're not getting the test done and they're going out when they're ill. So this is a way that we ensure that, uh, you know, people have to answer some questions. And if they're unable to answer those questions, then uh, they're not allowed in the, in the facility. So this is, as I say, all things, and we understand the impact. We tried to mitigate some. If you're a single employer uh, uh, facility, you do not have to. You just post it on the door, obviously. If you've only got one employee, mm-hmm. you can't be watching the door and as well as, as mining the till and things like that. If people come to pick up things, they can just come and pick up things and go. But it's, it's, a, it's a balance, Bill, and, and I, I do and we all do. We recognize that all of these things have an impact. Monitoring, masking, doing the screening, it's all tough. But as you say, the alternative is much tougher. You don't get a choice. It's closure for many, many businesses, except for essential pieces, no indoor dining, those types of things. And what we want to do really is move back to less restrictive modes. And that will allow us to do even more of the things that we like to do. And heading into a very important time, the holiday season, it's just so critically important we get this right. So even with the vaccine announcements, even with all the stuff that's happening around, uh, just really encourage Hamiltonians to do uh, the things that we need to do. Wear a mask, keep your distance, wash your hands regularly. Do not go out if you're sick and uh, get uh, get uh, advice about whether you need a test or, or what, what whatever you, if you do feel under the weather. Well, that's the takeaway here, isn't it? That, uh, that, you know, yeah, the vaccine is great news, and yeah, there are going to be more on the market probably by springtime, and that's even better news. But uh, we've got to maintain the protocol here. You still have to do the face masking, the social distancing, and the hand washing, because uh, if we don't, well, you know what the alternative is. And I, I'm hoping that, that that's not what we hear tomorrow, but we have to be diligent, and we can't let, let up at this point. I mean, this is, a, this is a critical time for us, isn't it? It really is, and it's going to go through the winter. And I, I listen, you know, to the public comments by um, uh, by the province about kind of the timing. And I think, you know, what they're trying to suggest to folks is it is it is spring when we're going to be starting some of this broader vaccination piece, which means we're headed through the winter, the time when we're indoors uh, more and all of that. Um, we're going to be heading through that winter, needing to do everything we can uh, to stop this spread. Our healthcare system is still being stretched. Uh, we still have vulnerabilities in our congregate settings, and all of those things mean that, uh, uh, you know, all, all I say is it's great to be thinking about two tracks now. Instead of only thinking about how do we take case counts down, how do we do all that stuff, and not ever being able to see the finish line, now we're able to say, keep that going, keep those cases low, do all the things we need to do because we can see the roadmap. Uh, for a vaccination strategy. So that's that's where we are, which is great news. And I think it is a moment to be happy about. Uh, but I, I do worry sometimes that people will see this as also a moment where we can start to relax on some of those measures. And we cannot. We need to keep them up. And in fact, we need to do, do a better job, quite frankly. Paul Johnson, the director for the Emergency Center for COVID Relief here in the Hamilton area. Paul, as always, thanks for this. And uh, fingers crossed about what happens tomorrow. Thanks again for uh, joining us today. Thanks, Bill. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Pfizer's coronavirus vaccine is now officially approved for use by Health Canada. Uh, they've completed their review of the data that was submitted by Pfizer and deemed that the hotly awaited vaccine is safe for use. Now, still a lot of questions about this. Uh, what's in the vaccine? Uh, you know, if you have allergies, uh, you know, can you still get the vaccine? And is it even going to get here? Uh, because of the, uh, well, the musings from uh, U.S. President Donald Trump, who's basically said that the vaccines in the states are going to stay in the states until everybody in America is vaccinated, and then maybe we'll ship some of it out. But uh, Federal Procurement Minister Anita Anand has uh, said that the shipment is going to travel from Europe to Kentucky in the United States, but she says she doesn't expect any problems getting the vaccine across the border back into Canada. We are given assurances by Pfizer that the deliveries will not be affected by what is occurring in the United States. And we are confident, therefore, that the company with whom we have contracted will ensure that those deliveries make it to our shores. 
Well, we can only hope so. You do recall, of course, uh, during phase one of the uh, pandemic when uh, we had ordered some masks from 3N through Wisconsin, I believe was the factory, and they got held up at the border by the U.S. government who simply said, no, nope, you can't have them. We finally worked it out, but I hope we don't have to go through that sort of thing once again. We'll see what happens in the next couple of days. But a lot of questions still remain about this, about the vaccine itself, uh, the efficacy of the vaccine, and and a number of other things. Uh, to shed some light on this, we're pleased to welcome back to the program Dr. Zane Shagler, who's an infectious disease specialist at St. Joe's Hospital and an associate professor in the Division of Infectious Diseases in the Department of Medicine at McMaster University. Doctor, thank you so much for the time. Great to have you back with us again today. No problem. No problem. How, how excited should we be about this vaccine? I, I know it's still months away, but, I mean, there's an expectation here that, that our troubles are going to be over soon. Look, I, we've been dealing with this for nine, ten months. We haven't had an intervention that is that effective. We give steroids to patients that are relatively ill. We have ventilation strategies. But all of that stuff is on the scale of things you know, minuscule compared to what these vaccines could do. Now, it still could do, but, um, you know, to date, there has not been an intervention that looks this promising to really getting control of this disease. So, I mean, there's, there's a lot of caution, but there's a lot of optimism here, too, that we've unlocked the door for another era of COVID where this becomes a very manageable disease. And, and I guess just to put this in, in context, too, I mean, obviously we're talking about Pfizer because that's the one that seems to be uh, getting the, the approval it did from Health Canada, the U.K., of course, and, and uh, what's going on with the FDA down in the south of the border. Uh, but with others on the horizon here, does, does, does that increase your optimism that, that things are going to get much better early into 2021? Yeah, I agree. I mean, again, Pfizer is there. Moderna is only a couple of weeks away. I think they're starting to get their paperwork ready, and I wouldn't be surprised the next week or two we hear an approval from them because they typically, again, their, their results were staggered by Pfizer's for about a week or two. Um, the AstraZeneca, there's a little bit of issues there, and probably the trials need to continue for that. But even from what I read yesterday, even the Johnson & Johnson product, which is fairly similar to the AstraZeneca product, is rapidly nearing its end point too as well. So I think we, we yeah, we are going to talk in the next year about potentially two, not even three vaccines being on the market. Uh, and again, getting ready for a mass vaccine campaign that will hit pretty much every Canadian. Um, you know, the, the, the door is open now. This is a new era that, that really gives us a powerful tool to control COVID-19 transmission uh, and severe disease and death. And again, I, I think 2021 looks very optimistic considering we had nothing in 2020. With all these potential vaccines coming on the market right now, mm. is, is there a marked difference between them, doctor? I mean, you know, from, from for instance, Pfizer, which seems to be the, the one that everyone's using right now, uh, Johnson & Johnson, we're told it may actually just be a one-dose vaccine. Uh, mm. The composition of the vaccine themselves, are there going to be huge differences there, do you think? So the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines are relatively similar. They're both mRNA-based. They both use uh, a special lipid nanoparticle to kind of package everything together. The only major difference between the two is Moderna's efforts, and and something proprietary about their lipid nanoparticle has has made it such that the refrigeration requirements are a whole lot easier, that it's minus 20 for long-term storage and then being uh, refrigerated for use, whereas we hear about the Pfizer's minus 70, minus 80 ultra cold requirement for long-term storage. So that could be one major difference. And, and certainly they're going to be complementary as they roll out in terms of what populations get one or the other because of what infrastructure is available locally. Um, and yeah, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, which we're not talking about very much, is incredibly interesting. They're, they're doing trials in both one and two doses. Um, But if you're starting to see effects with one dose, and you know what, even if it's one dose and it's 70% effective, knowing that the Johnson & Johnson and AstraZeneca um, uh, vaccines are very refrigerator stable, um, you know, there is big implications here in the sense that, uh, you know, this is a vaccine theoretically that could have a huge global health impact that could be rolled out to many countries where, where some of these requirements we're talking about, you know, are unachievable or very difficult to achieve. Um, and so there is certainly a lot of hope uh, uh, in that strategy to, to make sure that, uh, that a, a product comes to the market that, that has a global health strategy. And unfortunately, the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines are not 
there yet. There's still a lot of work that needs to be done uh, to make them uh, usable. I, I, I want you, if you could, address a problem, a question rather, that I've received from an awful lot of people as we've had this discussion mm-hmm. over the last week or 10 days. How do you make the determination, or how do the, do the drug manufacturers make the determination as to whether it's a one dose or a two dose? What, what's, what's the criteria for that? Yeah, so, I mean, this is done way at the beginning. So this is, you know, when we talk about phase one and phase two trials, this is where we start developing that information of what the responses look like after a single dose, after multiple doses. And those phase one and two trials actually end up being dose-finding trials, too, as well, to find the optimal vaccine strategy in that sense. So prior to enacting... Uh, you know, the clinical trials that we're seeing come out right now, the phase three trials, that work is done in the beginning, looking at healthy volunteers, looking at how long their responses last, uh, and, and developing different vaccine strategies to see if they um, uh, uh, complicate, you know, what's, what's going on and, and, and whether or not antibodies drop or that type of thing. So that's determined in advance. Johnson & Johnson, I think there was a little bit of equipoise where they didn't know whether or not one or two would be optimal. And so they just decided to roll out both as a clinical trial and, uh, and work through it from there. It was interesting uh, about that because I saw a study yesterday. Uh, it was in the UK because that's obviously the first place where they started the uh, inoculation program, uh, where they went through some of the data that Pfizer had provided for them, I guess, and just said, you know, there, there was a, a, a pretty good signs that even one dose of the Pfizer vaccine uh, might might be enough. Uh, although, you know, that's not what Pfizer says, but they just said the, the data there was incredible. So I, the analysis of the information that these companies provide is going to be very interesting to see just exactly how effective this is going to be. Yeah, absolutely. And again, that one dose, you know, the, the, from the data that, that actually the FDA released as part of their submission, um, it is, uh, um, it does look like when you get one dose at about day 14, people get less COVID than uh, that get the placebo. The problem with that stuff is that we're never going to give people um, less than one dose, or at least ethically for now, I don't think we can. We have to do what the optimal dose strategy was. Uh, it's definitely for sure that, that uh, you know, you are getting protection early. It just, unfortunately, we don't know if that one-shot protection lasts a few months, a few years, and given that we're really stuck in this, we want the most robust strategy forward. So I think we're, we're stuck with the two doses for this vaccine until other trials move forward. There is some talk about some trials mixing two different vaccines together to see if that gives you a better response. Um, but, uh, but yeah, for now, I think we're, we're, we're approving the drug for the two-dose strategy, and that's how it will probably be administered to Canadians moving forward. I'm glad you brought that up because I've heard that discussion as well, that uh, that maybe a hybrid of some of these things that are being developed and put on the market that might be the best solution. But I guess we won't know that until they've gone through the phase three and, and, and actually go to market. Yeah, exactly. And again, this is this is the weird part of this issue is if you get products that, that work, you're ethically bound to use those products as they're advertised. Um, you know, as you start recruiting people into different vaccine studies, it's, it's hard to actually recruit them in to say, um, uh, uh, you know, please don't get the standard of care, which is actually going to prevent you from getting COVID, get this other vaccine, which we don't know, right? So there is this weird thing that's going to be happening in the next few months in terms of how you restructure vaccine studies, knowing there's approved vaccines on the market. Do you go to places where they don't have access? Do you go you know, to, uh, to, to do a hybrid strategy, give one dose and then another to say, okay, we're doing half of what's normal. Um, you know, there, there's a, a real interesting part of medical ethics and, and, uh, and clinical research that's going to be introduced um, uh, that, uh, that, that's going to be interesting to see how other vaccines fare going forward. Doctor, let's talk about uh, the composition of the vaccine because there's always going to be some concern about that. And mm-hmm. uh, even before this, this rollout started, of course, as well, I don't know if I want to take this. And there's always people that are going to have some trepidation about this. I get that. Uh, but with the rollout in the U.K. the other day, it was, I think, within one day of the first uh, inoculations mm-hmm. uh, that six people, I guess it was, that, that had a, a, what they classified as an allergic reaction. Uh, and they're all fine, apparently. Uh, you know, they, they looked at, and I guess a couple of them have went into the hospital and got some treatment for this, and they seem to be fine. Uh, but it's raised the question once again about what's in this thing, and is it going to be safe for us? I mean, the vaccine uh, that's fighting COVID may be fine, but that's not the only thing that gets injected. There's other materials within that vaccine. Uh, should we be mm. concerned about that? 
No, I think there's there's a couple of things. One is, you know, every vaccine uh, administration strategy involves a, a response to people that would have an allergic reaction then and there. And so, you know, that's important that, you know, if you get your flu shot, if you get other vaccines, there's always the availability of a, um, a, a major intervention to prevent an allergy or a significant allergic reaction from happening. Everyone has an EpiPen as part of these clinics. Um, and so, you know, number one, that's built in. Number two, it's still a small number of individuals. Yes, it's real world individuals, which is the one concern, but it is still a very small amount of individuals. The updated guidance even this morning is, you know, people with a food allergy don't fall into this group. It's really people with prior vaccine or drug allergies that would fall into this group. So it's again, narrowing down. And again, number three is this is very early days. Pfizer and, and the drug regulatory agencies are going to take a very close look at this and look at the exact component that seems to be driving these reactions. And I think we'll get updated guidance to say, if you have an allergy to X, you shouldn't be getting the vaccine. It also really helps us because there are ways, even in patients with these serious allergies, to get them vaccinated. We can do skin tests, we can do challenges. There's there's ways that we've done this before, even in those populations. So, you know, it's a little bit of an issue. It definitely needs to be transparent and out there because this is a, a novel vaccine. Um, but at the same time, this is a group that even at the end of the day will probably have access to the vaccination with a little bit of work and a little bit of research going forward. In response to that, I saw a quick report on the news the other day about something called, I think the phrase they used was desensitization uh, for people mm. with allergies, that there's a methodology that they can still get the vaccine. Yeah, this is the graded challenge, right? So, you you know, we know that that immune response, if you give people escalating little, little, little amounts, uh, and escalate it up and up and up, you let their immune system tolerate it and not develop an allergy, and then you end it with giving them the full dose, basically, and stopping after that. This is something we use for peanuts. This is something we use for other allergens. Um, you know, uh, and so it is an effective strategy to get a dose in. You know, as long as you know what the component is, you can start working to protocols to do that. So, you know, this stuff has been well-established, and, and again, it just requires us to know the specific component that's setting it off to then do a graded challenge and get to the final dose, even for the highest risk people. I mean, we need to be practical about this too, don't we, doctor? I mean, just about anything we inject, I mean, there's, there's going to be some sort of a, a reaction or some sort of a side effect, uh, depending on the individual, I would think. I mean, I got my flu yeah, shot I mean, the other day, and I, I felt I felt crappy for about 24 hours. Uh, fine right after that, but I mean, there, that seemed to be an effect of, of, of getting the injection. Yeah, exactly. There is that part, that's the injection site issue, the pain, the fever, the feeling lousy. That's very different, and that is going to be an expected effect that was seen in the trial, that's seen with many vaccines as part of immune activation. That's going to be something that's there. And then there is this, you know, response, which is anaphylactoid allergic in a small number of individuals that got the vaccine. In the clinical trials, is not seen, but they didn't enroll people with these types of reactions. You know, it's going to occur in a small number. It's, it should not impair a mass vaccine campaign. It's just precautions need to be made to identify these individuals uh, beforehand uh, and have, uh, you know, uh, stop gaps in place that it, the worst case that one shows up without an identified allergy, um, that they're, they're still, you know, there's stuff to manage them. And that's already built in an observation period, the EpiPen available, all that stuff. So, Again, this is not going to impair a mass vaccine strategy. It's something to note. It's something for everyone to note uh, as this is getting rolled out. But it's a very small number of people that are actually developing a serious reaction. And the injection site reaction is going to happen. And, and again, that's, that's not dangerous. It's just annoying. And it, it, it really refers to how immune activating this, uh, this uh, um, uh, injection is uh, for, for the good part. That's what it's supposed to do. Mm-hmm. A lot of... People that are concerned about this are saying, look, I, I don't want to be first. I want somebody else to do this and, mm-hmm. and see how this is going. Uh, so let's backtrack a little bit, I guess, I, to, to back to phase three of what Pfizer did before they actually got approval mm-hmm. for all of this stuff. I know that uh, that 
folks like yourself in the business here have, uh, have applauded Pfizer for the diversity of the, the test group that they use. I think it was 30,000 people or something. Uh, different ethnicities, different uh, uh, age groups and things of this nature. Uh, so my, my, my short answer, I guess, to that is uh, you're not going to be first if you roll up your sleeve. You're going to be, there's about 30,000 people that went ahead of you uh, to make this determination. So this is this is not unproven. No, exactly. You're you have you're probably fifty thousandth in line here. Now <laughs> there is a, a little bit of a difference between again a, a carefully selected clinical trial group versus a real world group. Um, but yeah, there is some reassurance there that there is at least fifty thousand people, some of which got placebo. That you're really looking at side effects. You have federal regulators that are looking through the data, you know, line by line, making sure there's no discrepancies here. Um, and so that is reassuring in that, that context. I agree with people, though. I mean, no one wants to be the first in line. Many people don't want to be the first in line for a novel strategy. Um, and, you know, for the average person who's going to have minimal complications from COVID that isn't a risk profession, you know, is there an issue with them holding off? No, and I think it's time for them to get information and, and listen and learn. But at the same time, the barriers that ha- pe- people have to go through to get to this point, for a drug to be rolled out to, you know, an, an enormous amount of Canadians, there is a relatively high safety bar that needs to be jumped over. And, you know, at least Health Canada has said, you know, you've jumped over that bar. There is enough safety data here to suggest it is a safe vaccine moving forward. Well, and history shows us that uh, Health Canada has pretty stringent uh, qualifications mm-hmm. anyway. And with, we're always hearing from people saying, how come that drug's available in the States and we don't get it here yet? It's because they're not mm-hmm. quite sure about yeah. it yet. And, and obviously, for them to give a thumbs up to this vaccine uh, means that they've gone through all the hoops and, and it's passed with, with flying colors. Absolutely. Right. This is this is a big thing. Like, you know, Health Canada going through it, approving it. That is a very high bar to cross. And again, Health Canada's mandate is to protect Canadians. That is their only mandate to protect Canadians from pharmaceutical products. So, um, you know, certainly they're 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 not, um, you know, uh, answerable to any industry or any partners or even the government in that sense. They're answerable to Canadians and Canadian health. And so jumping over that bar is, is a very, very big piece for sure. Doctor, so glad you could join us today to shed some light on this and maybe uh, clear up some of the, the concerns and mythologies that uh, seem to be circulating these days. Uh, great to have you. Uh, stay well, and hopefully we'll talk again soon about this. All right. Take care, Bill. Take care. Dr. Zane Shagla, of course, from uh, St. Joe's Hospital in Hamilton and uh, the Department of Medicine at McMaster University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to talk about another, uh, I think, very, very important discussion uh, that's ongoing these days. And, of course, when we talk about the economic recovery as we try to move through this pandemic, especially the second wave, uh, the whole concept of a basic income has uh, come back onto the table. And uh, there is a push right now to extend the Canada Emergency Response Benefit and turn that into a basic income program. Now, while the two are similar, a basic income differs in that it provides government money specifically for people in poverty for covering expenses like well, rent, food, things of that nature. Global News' Mike LeCouture has all the details. The idea has been tried before in Manitoba in the 1970s and more recently in 2017 in Ontario. Both pilot projects found that recipients of basic income were healthier and used the money to create more opportunities for themselves. The Ontario project was scrapped believing it was a failure. Detractors contend basic income is too expensive. However, there is new momentum to bring back a federal plan. Advocates like palliative care physician Dr. Nahid Dasani say there are benefits for all aspects of society. I do think that basic income and policies associated with it have the potential to improve health outcomes but also reduce health care utilization like a stay in a hospital or a visit to an emergency department. While there is some federal political will to do it, the reality is it likely won't happen until after the pandemic. Mike LeCouture, Global News. And the debate rages on. And uh, as Mike mentioned in his report there, we did have a pilot project, as you recall, in Ontario uh, during the uh, last uh, little bit of the uh, Kathleen Wynne administration. Uh, Hamilton was one of the test sites for that. And uh, as soon as uh, the Doug Ford government were elected, uh, they scrapped the program. And as, as Mike mentioned, they said it was it was a failure. Well, they didn't have any data uh, about that. That was, that was really just, you know... <laughs> 
whatever phrase you want to use here. They just made that up because they just, I think philosophically didn't like the whole idea. But I think it's a discussion we need to have. Uh, to get some context on this, uh, please to welcome to the program David Stiff, who is the director for the Canadian Centre for Economic Analysis. Uh, David, thank you for the time. Glad you could join us here today. Uh, thanks, Bill. It's a pleasure to be talking about this. As I say, we know a little bit about this because we had uh, in Hamilton here one of the test projects uh, in the province of Ontario during the wind government. Uh, I, I talked extensively about this. I talked to some of the people that were rolling out the program here and uh, some of the people that were the recipients of the program, and we saw some of the success stories. As a matter of fact, uh, notwithstanding the fact that, as you know, David, the Ford government said the the, part, the whole thing was a failure, uh, the data that was released shortly after they canceled the program suggested that it actually was doing quite well. Uh, does, does that put some wind in the wings here, that, that maybe this is an idea that needs to be reconsidered? Uh, yeah, d- definitely. I, I think it's always been uh, sort of in, in the background in, um, in a few pilot projects, both in Canada and around the world, uh, about uh, some of the benefits that arise from a uh, basic income program, uh, whether it's through uh, greater access to education, or as you heard in the news clip there, uh, better access to health care and reduced health care utilization. Um, the one thing that uh, we did uh, and took a look at is one of the questions that hasn't been examined quite so much, and that's what are the broader economic impacts of a basic income program. Um, many of the, the questions that have been raised uh, typically say, well, it's a great idea, but how can we afford it? Uh, does it make financial sense in the economy overall? Uh, and so uh, an organization called uh, UBI Works uh, sponsored CANSIA, uh, the uh, Center for Economic Analysis, to undertake a, an analysis to look at that question in particular about what the potential economic impacts of basic income programs are um, over the longer term into the economy overall. And, and what did you find from that? Uh, well, one of the key conclusions that if it's implemented properly, um, it can actually be viewed much more as an investment rather than the cost of the economy. Uh, it can help support uh, greater economic growth, a uh, greater number of jobs in the future, uh, while also... Uh, alleviating a lot of the, the basic poverty issues that, that exist across many families in the country. That's an interesting aspect to this discussion that oftentimes is, is excluded when politicians especially talk about this and they use that blanket phrase, well, we can't afford to do it. Uh, if you start adding up the, the, the amount of money that we spend uh, because of the problems that, that poverty creates, uh, it, 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 if it doesn't balance it, it's actually probably more to the benefit to have an income project. Uh, uh, you know, As you mentioned, people can go back to school, they can better their situation, they can pay their rent, uh, and they can be healthier uh, as opposed to going on to social assistance or so many other different things that can happen in situations like this uh, that it just seems to me a lot of the time when this dis- discussion and debate happens uh, they don't look at both sides of the ledger here uh, yeah i think that's definitely true and a part of the challenge is that it's a it's a difficult question to answer how will the economy respond to uh, a basic income uh, in particular uh, how does it tr- change uh, say consumption patterns among households uh, one of the things that uh, we find in the analysis is that uh, the lower-income households actually tend to spend a greater fraction of their money. So the money is in circulation more, and that actually helps uh, feedback and grow the economy uh, in, in the longer term. Uh, and uh, this is actually, uh, we didn't even get into the additional benefits in terms of reduced healthcare costs uh, and things along those lines uh, in the analysis when we're looking at uh, the, the project that we did. Well, one of the big so questions... One of the big questions we have uh, on a national basis right now, of course, is housing and affordable housing. Uh, you know, if you can't afford to pay the rent, uh, you've got a problem. If you have a basic income and you know that that rent money is going to be there and you can buy groceries, uh, that's a better circumstance. Uh, that way you don't become one of the statistics on that wrong side of that ledger. But the other element to this, too, and I, I'm interested to get your read on this, is is this, this problem that a number of elected officials seem to have about the bottom line, we can't afford to do this, as, as you've mentioned. That seems to be the common mantra from people that just give this a thumbs down, including the, the current government here in Ontario. Uh, but, but when you look at what we're already doing, uh, I mean, there's a guaranteed income supplement for seniors that are they're having troubles. Uh, you know, young families that get monthly checks, of course, from the federal government for child uh, expenses, things of this nature. We're already doing this. We're already trying to subsidize and help people that that are in, in rough shape at, at either end of this, why not people that are, are in, in low-income situations? It, it seems to make much more sense. It's, it's not as if we're breaking new ground here. We're just including more people into the programs that already exist. Uh, yeah, exactly. As you mentioned, uh, we actually did analysis on the Canada Child Benefit, which is, as you said, basically a basic income for families with children. Yeah. Uh, 
And this really is uh, can be viewed as an extension of that across a greater number of, of households. Um, we did look at a couple of different variations of uh, basic income programs, uh, one quite similar to the Ontario uh, model that was done. Uh, another one uh, that is a, a bit different approach where there's a bit more of a universal uh, dividend paid to everyone. Uh, they have some different trade-offs and benefits across different households. Uh, but overall, it really is, uh, I think, uh, pulling out some numbers here, uh, both programs would lift about 3.2 million families above the poverty line uh, that exists there today. Uh, so it can have some significant uh, benefits across the country. And invariably, I mean, government programs like this, I mean, they, they become modified and changes as things go on. I know when the, the Guaranteed Income Supplement was initiated, uh, there was a, a huge hue and cry that, you know, even if you still had a million dollars and you were 65 or 66 years old, you got the And they said, no, 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 no you, it, you have to qualify for it. Yet There has to be a need for it. Uh, and, and that only made sense because, you know, there are some people that aren't going to need that in situations like this. But this is... The, the concept of basic income, uh, as I see it anyway, David, is targeting a specific group that needs it. I, I know that there, there's some people that simply say everybody should just get, you know, 100 bucks a month from the government or something like that. I, and one of the uh, presidential candidates in the uh, election, a Democratic nominee, was, was t- talking about that, but everybody getting, I think it was $20,000 a year or something like that. That that I can understand people saying, well, look, we just can't afford to do that because not everybody needs that money. Uh, everybody wants it, but they don't need it. But this is a specific need. Uh, and as you say, whether it's the Dolphin Manitoba uh, project that happened back in the 70s, I guess now, or even the one here in Ontario, uh, th- there seems to be an indication that people that are using this program and benefiting from this program do improve their lifestyles and they do improve their lives. And the key element that that you touched on here is they do spend the money i mean they don't put this into foreign bank accounts you know offshore accounts in the cayman islands or anything they go to the local store and they spend their money they buy groceries they do other things so it's actually good for the local economy yeah and that's uh, one of the main sources of the longer-term economic benefits that helps support the local jobs that feed back into the local neighborhoods and uh, that also starts generating additional tax revenue for the government to start uh, recouping some of the initial costs of the program so it really uh, have to look at the full picture uh, of the, the life cycle of the money flowing in the economy to really be able to view and evaluate uh, the, the economic, long-term economic impacts of a basic income uh, program. Uh, and I should say that impacts do vary considerably depending on how it's funded as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things that came out of the, the analysis is that the government can't just borrow money uh, endlessly to, to fund the basic income program. It has to be recouped. And that work, the way that works best tends to be from uh, the households that are able to afford it, uh, and possibly a little bit from, from business as well, but not too much where it starts impacting uh, uh, that side of the economy uh, negatively. Yeah, and, and that's, I guess, one of the things that has to happen in this discussion. And let me ask you, since we've been doing this, and by, by we, I mean the Canadian government, with the SER benefit and other uh, supplemental programs that have been put in place because of the pandemic, has it, has it, has it changed the minds of some folks in Ottawa, not just the politicians, but the bureaucrats, uh, because they've seen the net benefit? I mean, God help us, if, they, if we didn't have any of these assistance programs during the pandemic, uh, you can just imagine the dire circumstance that so many people would be in if that was not available to them. Uh, is this an indicator that, listen, if we continue this afterwards, because we're not going to, the economy is not going to improve the day after, you know, we, we all get vaccinated. This is going to take a long, long time. And and there are always going to be people that are going to be in, 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 you know, dire circumstances. Uh, do, do they rethink this now and say, yeah, maybe, maybe there's some merit to something like this? Um, I, I, w- I would hope so. <laughs> I can't really say <laughs> exactly what, what's going on in the minds of the, the government and, and bureaucrats. Uh, but there's a, a couple of interesting points that came out um, for just a comparison for the Ontario Basic Income Program. Um, I think for an individual, it was about $17,000 a year that they were eligible for. Um, with the CERB benefit, uh, it was uh, $2,000 a month or, or $24,000 a year, uh, which seems to be what they consider to be the basic income, a basic minimum required to um, for, for a family. Um, so there's, there's some sort of interesting reading between the lines there a little bit in terms of what they consider a basic uh, minimum is, is needed, uh, but exactly how they might follow this forward um, in, in the future, I'm not really uh, in a position to comment too much on that. Um, well, I, when we do our analysis, we try to sort of, to be agnostic to the policy and just provide the numbers. Yeah, uh, from that point of view. Yeah. 
Well, and, and I mean, you need that sort of independent analysis on this. Obviously, I mean, a lot of the folks I've talked to were on either side of this, and it can be a very polarizing issue. Those that think it's a fabulous idea and those that just think it's a waste of time. And you've heard the characterization, I'm sure, as, as well, David. Uh, you know, we're not going to give money to people who are just going to sit on their duff and stay home. And, that, well, that, and that's not really what happens with a basic income project anyway. Uh, it doesn't mean just you're going to get a check no matter what you do. I mean, there's there's follow-up, there's, there's, a, there's a, a, a chronicling of, of what goes on and a lot of these people are working already that that we're in this program uh, and sometimes working two jobs uh, to try to make ends meet in situations like this and this alleviates an awful lot of that stress and gives them some 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 security and i guess some consistency as to where the money's going to be coming from because oftentimes if you're doing that you know that kind of employment where you're working part-time jobs in a couple of different places uh especially now during the pandemic and probably for a long time after the pandemic you're not going to for sure know what, what hours you're going to work from week to week you're not sure what, what's how much money you're going to be making you're not sure if you're going to be able to pay bills and, and pay rent and things of this nature this this gives a little consistency to it and i guess you know the, the, it's a it's not a handout i think there was a phrase i heard it was a hand up for an awful lot of people yeah no that's an, an excellent way of looking at it and one of the things that we did in uh setting up for this analysis as well is quite an extensive literature review um internationally across some of the impacts of uh, basic income. And one of the things that came out of there is there really isn't any uh, sign that there's a significant change in labor force participation. Uh, people don't tend to just sit at home um, and, and collect the money. They still are active out there in the labor force. Um, the only small exception is that if there's some people choose to go back to school instead, uh, which is actually a benefit in the longer term. Uh, so. Yeah, yeah, we talked to I think it was ten people over the course of the the pilot project while it was in Hamilton, and uh, and and actually I think four of the ten actually had gone back to school. They went back to to Mohawk College to, to basically increase their skill sets uh, to go and eventually, as you mentioned, find a better job uh, than the one that they had before the program started. Uh, so there is a net benefit to this. Uh, you've done an awful lot of work and an awful lot of analysis on this. Uh, we can only hope uh, that uh, that the the powers that be in Ottawa and maybe in some of the other uh, provincial capitals are going to digest this information and, and reconsider it. I, I, I'm, I'm thinking that, you know, there's got to be a, a, a deep discussion about this because uh, going forward, uh, you know, governments have to understand that this is going to take an awfully long time for us to recover uh, from this situation that we're in, especially from an economic standpoint. And uh, and assistance like this, I think, might be part of the problem. And, and, and that's part of, the, I, I guess, the debate too, isn't it, David? This is not the silver bullet. This is not the cure-all to say everybody's going to be happy now, but it may well be one of the tools in the toolbox. Yeah, that, that's an excellent way to look at it. It's, it's one, another uh, arrow in the quiver of how to help uh, families and households, yeah. uh, both uh, in the uh, recovery from the pandemic, but also changing labor markets in the future, uh, changing technology. Uh, there needs to be a constant reskilling of, of the labor force, and being able to have the opportunity and uh, security to do that uh, can uh, really help those uh, families in the long term. Well, uh, congratulations on the work done. If uh, people want to get a look at the report, is there a, a web page they can go to? Uh, yeah, uh, you can find it on our, our website, cancia.ca. Uh, okay, that's the uh, – or just Google the Canadian Center for Economic Analysis, and I guess you can follow the links yeah, to that. It'll, yeah, it'll show up there as well. David, thanks so much for the time today. I really appreciate oh, it. My pleasure. Great Thank you, David. David Stiff is the director of the Canadian Center for Economic Analysis, uh, talking about basic income in this particular project. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.